welcome to <clears throat> our second Indic Book Club author Q&A. And this time we have two authors with us, two very distinguished uh, authors with us, uh, uh, Harsh Madhusudan and uh, Rajiv Mantri. And uh, we are going to be talking and spending the next uh, 45 minutes to an hour about their book, uh, which is uh, a new idea of India. And I am going to share and okay, they have excellent. A new idea of India, individual rights in a civilizational state. And it's been published by Westland. It's a hardcover book. It's, a, uh, you know, gorgeously produced, uh, very high quality production. And the content in it is even better. I had the, uh, the opportunity of reading the book a few days back and I have made the copious notes from it. In case uh, you don't already know, both uh, uh, both Harsh and Rajiv have been writing for several years in several newspapers, including Mint. And it, this book is itself divided into five or six different chapters. Each one covers uh, one aspect of uh, what they believe uh, should constitute a new idea of India. And reading through that book, uh, a couple of things struck me. The first one was uh, that it is very, very logically presented very, very articulately put forward their arguments. And uh, it becomes, I think, if you are on, say, the index side of the debate, then this book provides you with a lot of cogent arguments and uh, facts that you can use to, to, to enhance your knowledge as well as it equips you, better equips you to take part in debates that may happen. And if you are not on the right, uh, on the index side of this debate, then I think it gives you a lot of a uh, uh, lot of food for thought to to use a phrase and even on on issues that where you may hold opposing views it presents its arguments in a way that are that are not polemic which is quite a contrast from what you typically tend to see on social media for example and so on and I think it towards uh, to to that end this book is going to have a lot of value, not only in the immediate, but in the years to come as a reference that people can go back to and read up on, on not only, you know, if they want to read up on certain facts and so, because it's extensively referenced also, but also to see where the emerging Indic debate stood at a point in time in the year 2020. Uh, before I get into, uh, you know, the, the Q and A, I'll also, uh, do a little bit of a plug for Indic Book Club. So uh, if you're not already aware, you know, Indic Book Club uh, is uh, uh, is now about five years old and we are doing our bit to raise the awareness and the discourse and the level of debate and to promote uh, writers, authors, readers in the Indic sphere. So you can take part by either following us on Twitter at uh, Indic Book Club or on Facebook. So there's a Facebook group. So facebook.com slash group slash Indic Book Club. So with that, welcome Harsh and Rajiv. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, with this virtual background, it's going to become very difficult to show you what I have. So I'm, uh, as, as you can make out, I'm holding a book and I have added a lot of, uh, you know, wow. sticky notes in here. So my intent is not so much as to, as, as to you know, tell you what a great book you have written because I've already done that. So for the next uh, 45 minutes or so, I'm going to uh, see if we can't find uh, counter arguments to some of the points you've made. Uh, let me first begin with the origins of this book are, are many years old. And you 
say that there was this article that came out uh, by some academic in the US that talked about, uh, you know, the idea of India. And that led to a multi-part online debate in the form of articles and, and so on that appeared in, uh, in several newspapers. And so first, let me ask you this very, very basic question. India is not exactly a new country, even though some people assume it is only about 70 years old. Uh, India as a civilizational, as a geographical entity, and I'm not going to quote the great Winston Churchill who said India is a country as much as the equator is. Uh, but why do we need this debate on this idea of India, first of all? And what do you mean? I mean, I'm still confused, frankly. What is it that this idea of India is meant to mean? And therefore, what is this new idea of India that uh, you two are articulating? Can you talk a little bit about that? Should I take a stab, Rajiv? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, thank you so much, Abhina, for the excellent introduction. Um, as you rightly mentioned, the genesis of the book was a bunch of columns you wrote together. Uh, the most prominent ones being the debate with Professor Ashutosh Varshni of Brown University in Mint, Indian Express and other publications about what he saw that the idea of India in his sense or in the Nehruvian sense to some extent would be they must see minorities as minorities, perhaps over and above as individual citizens. The group rights are very important in his imagination of the idea of India. And that's the point we kind of took on and say that's not what our idea of India is. Our idea of India does not believe in fixed group identities. It believes in individual rights and duties, but within a civilizational um, context. So I think, I think that, was, that, was, uh, that was the genesis in, as far as that is concerned. The idea of India, as you can see from the subtitle is individual rights in a civilizational state. So we are saying, as you rightly mentioned, that India is not 73 years old. It's a many thousands year old civilization. So that's the first part of the book, first chapter. The second chapter is this civilization is now converting into a nation uh, through the agency of a democratic, unified, autonomous, sovereign state. What do we mean by that? We mean that, okay, fine, maybe in a, in a European sense where there is some kind of internal social uh, malleability in some kind of social, not homogeneity, but at least coherence, yeah, maybe India was not a nation in that sense. It was, always a, it was always a civilization. But you could say that Punjab and Bengal had their own distinct identities, just like Andhra and uh, UP and Maharashtra and Gujarat had. Right? So to that extent, Indian states were analogous to European countries. And the sum of it was the Indian civilization, what in the European case, uh, till, a few, till a couple of centuries ago, we used to use the word Christendom. Uh, so, so the analogy was very much that the civilization has always been there. It's just that it's becoming a more coherent nation in this age through a unified democratic nation state. And therefore, that is the transition that we try to kind of chronicle. And why is it a new idea? Of course, no idea is completely new. I mean, part of the book is basically making the argument that it is in congruence with our own, the, the, the best of our own metaphysical heritage, ancient ethos. Uh, where, you know, salvation, uh, the rather better word is moksha, is individualized. So, so the idea is that, you know, in being, looking at people as individuals who make their own autonomous decisions, as opposed to groups, is not somehow alien to India. But having said that, because Nehru's state, to some extent, and we, we do try to make a distinction between Nehru and Nehruvian, and let's therefore stick with Nehruvian. Nehruvian state saw us as kind of a post-colonial entity, which was kind of born out of the British leaving, uh, and there was a convenient blind spot about partition. 
and therefore we have to constantly argue about idea of india because only 73 years ago which is two orders of magnitude less than the civilizational age of india if there are large parts of india which are no longer india then of course this is something we have to discuss so that nehruvian state saw it as a post colonial state kind of forgot the civilizational partition angle and then kind of turned around and did what the british were doing divide and rule in the name of group politics so so to that extent we are saying against that nehruvian idea rajiv and i are saying that there is a separate way of looking at things which is look at us as individual citizens while within the rubric of a civilizational state so it's not all it's not a it's not a fancy way of saying liberalism in india it is it's basically a way of saying caa may not be considered okay by liberals nrc may not be ram mandir may not be but those are the things that we okay within a civilizational context heritage history uh, you cannot be you cannot be path independent you have to look at the history of the hindus being left in pakistan and bangladesh and so on and so forth so the idea is very much the default is individual rights and duties but within a civilizational setup and that civilization now becoming a nation through our democratic state well and i think uh, so in a so, big way the economy also comes in here rajiv Uh, yeah so rajiv before before you answer i i want to interject here when you when when you uh, you know respond can you also tell us a little bit about uh, you know put this in context what the one hagiographer of uh, of uh, jawaharlal nehru wrote and i think it was nayantara sehgal who wrote that uh, india was was you know its mission was or uh, was to civilize a savage world <laughs> and i really couldn't understand the context of it i have no problems if if one says that the world itself was a savage place because uh, but i don't think that's exactly what that statement meant so can you also when you talk uh, touch a little bit upon upon that so let me let me start with that actually so i think that comment uh, you know it says so much right about the kind of hist- 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 history writing historiography that was happening in india uh, where uh, uh this particular uh, writer uh she characterizes the prime minister of india the first prime minister of india as civilizing a savage world in the sense that you know this there's this great man this great warrior and the world is such a terrible place and here he is fighting against everyone trying to take india into modernity in whatever way they define modernity and you know that's why they're trying to say we should be grateful to him and uh i i i honestly find it almost like a north korea style approach uh where you know there are these absurd caricatures made uh of certain individuals and and you know then the most hilarious thing is you know these are the same kinds of people who accuse the i mean labels are complicated but they these are the guys who accuse the right wingers of being bots uh in their own pejorative sort of usage uh so so it is it is kind of uh, amusing actually to look through all this literature from the 60s 70s 80s which kind of deified uh some of these individuals uh by the way these individuals themselves would never have thought of themselves in this way uh as is amply clear even nehru would not have uh you know he 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 was one of the kind of legends about him is that he was very very uh, sort of uh, uh, used to get very irritated with flatterers and those who tried to kind of uh, do that to him so he used to actively push back against that uh, but but here we have an entire industry of people uh, who who have kind of made a nice living for themselves for many decades uh, doing exactly that uh, and then and just to add to harsh's uh, uh, excellent summary of the book i just wanted to emphasize also on the economy i think uh, post independent uh, post independent india 
after 1947, uh, especially for the first 40 years, 40-45 years, India took a very uh, sort of uh, wrong trajectory on the economy side, where we became too collectivist. Even when the kind of socialism experiment was known to be failing in the 60s, there was no course correction. In fact, in fact, Indira Gandhi took us further uh, left. So, so that aspect of individual versus collective also is very important in the economic sense. And we make the case very strongly in the book that, uh, you know, what we call free markets or liberal economy is in fact highly compatible with the Indic worldview and with the civilizational sort of framework within which we have uh, situated modern day India. So, excellent. Uh, before I go to my next question, uh, I'll, for our viewers, you can send in your questions through the Q and A uh, feature. You can type in a question, and uh, once we are we, we are done talking, we'll take up those questions one by one, and we'll uh, address them. Uh, my second question is that <clears throat> you do talk about you know how how socialism took us back, even at a time when the rest of the world, and especially if you look at uh, uh, you know Japan and Korea, and then starting with. In 1978, when China started on its path to to you know moving towards a more capitalist sort of a, an economy, we were going back. And one example you quote is where the marginal rate of personal income tax was as high as 97.5 or 97.75 percent during Indira Gandhi's time. But let's start towards the end, and I'm going to read out a, a few lines from your book and. These are from the chapter Decolonizing the Indian State. And on the subject of education, you write, and you quote a quote Muridharan's study, which compared private versus public schools. And you write that the significant result was that the average cost per student in private schools was just a third of the cost in public schools, suggesting private schools in this setting deliver slightly better test score gains than their public counterparts and do so at substantially lower costs per student. So the question is that why hasn't, okay, so first one, why hasn't this received a lot more attention than it should have given that uh, we keep hearing from a lot of the chatter class that uh, you know, the middle class, Indian middle class is very selfish. It has contributed to the decline in public schools by taking the children out of public schools and putting them into private schools. Obviously, it ignores the fact that parents took children out of public schools because public schools themselves started to decline in quality of teaching. But leaving that aside, if there is an empirical study, right, and I think it's a, what an RCT, a randomized control trial that comes out with evidence that private schools can be better. Why has the study not received more attention? So um, the, the, the one of the interesting ways that Pranab Barthan, an economist, um, answered it is he called it the dictatorship of the salariate, uh, <laughs> as a pun on the dictatorship of the proletariat. And, uh, and the idea is very simple, teacher unions. Uh, and teacher unions are very powerful. It's a topic that the average Indian does not, average person anywhere in the world does not understand. It's a classic How case. are they powerful, uh, Harsh? In, uh, in what way? So I think they're powerful globally in the sense that it's a vested interest which is concentrated, which is focusing on one issue. And the parents' interests are diversified. But over and above that, in India, they are more powerful because historically, government school teachers have been, for example, election agents in villages. Uh, they've been very, very influential. I mean, it's now changing because literacy has risen much faster. But if you think 20, 30 years earlier, 
you know village ke jo master ji the they had a certain social status and had a lot of respect so uh, the idea was even if you now go to up bihar many indian states especially north india in fact all over india there is a tendency to have ki ghar mein nahi bahu aayi hai usko bed kara do aur bed ke baad agar sarkari teacher ki naukri lag jayegi to wo ab zindagi bhar ka 40 50 60000 plus whatever pay commission ke hisab se bharta rahega and agar zarurat padegi to bhejenge bhi nahi bahut baar nahi jaate the attendance is actually low although now they are trying to change it with uh with all these kind of uh, you know fingerprint testing and uh, but that is also receiving a lot of pushback in terms of just ensuring attendance and what happens is that a lot of these people who do get these jobs in terms of their credentials are actually better than the average low cost private school teacher that's interesting in terms of the credentials are actually better but in terms of their performance they're much lower because they have zero incentive uh to get better promotions or bonuses and absolutely no fear of getting fired and what happens is there are a lot of para teachers uh, which are basically temporary contract teachers this was introduced during atal bihari vajpayee ji's time and they are always fighting if you go to any state politics at the local level they're always fighting to become, ha exactly to become in, to become regularized they call it because you know unko unko mil raha hai 10 15000 mahine ka and the teacher who is teaching on the government permanent staff level he's getting 50 60000 rupees or even more and so they and the 10 15000 rupees guy can be fired anytime because he is not on the proper permanent pay scale he is not on the wage books so this is the politics this is the political economy of it and the point is it's very difficult to dislodge this unless some leading politician makes it a personal issue and goes out of the way is this and I also add to that any state but also uh, i think a broader fundamental issue is that a uh, lot of politicians even lot of parents i think you know some some of them who like to moralize about schools not making money and so on uh so a lot of people you know schools don't uh stu- students don't exist for the school the school exists for students so you know when we kind of uh we, we glorify public school hona chahiye aisa hona chahiye this hona chahiye that hona chahiye but the point is what is the efficacy what are students learning uh and and, and as you said that you compare the outcomes if you compare the outcomes versus the outlays uh the answer is very clear uh government should be funding school not schools but students if there should be public funding let's direct that towards students and i just want to quickly add to that i mean and you talk about the vouchers yeah exactly you talk about vouchers as exactly. as one uh, uh, method so i think mean, that's absolutely right vouchers is basically a way of having school choice or individual choice in competition whereby parents Uh, get some kind of voucher basically where they can reimburse that at any private school um and if the fees are higher they can always individually top up or if it's not required they do not have to top up and the idea is as rajiv rightly mentioned the government's tax mayer money for the poor students and the poor parents children should follow the student and not follow the school and the and, and if you look, and if you look at the uh, reports by pratham uh which the aser reports which come out every january for the last year and they are only focused on rural india there is a clear uh to send their children to private schools where they are paying fees they are letting go of something that is free where they are paying fees and the only response that people who are ideologues against this kind of school choice and some of them are for example anurag bihar and azim prem university 
who and Azim Azim Premji Foundation ironically funded this RCT that you mentioned of, and you know they 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 have to now disown it. Ironically, they had funded that very study. Um, so so their 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 basic idea is oh my God, there is an idea that says government schools are required for socialization of children into citizens. And if we let profit motive and individual groups have their own private schools, that does not happen. The, the irony is, you know, we already have madrasas, we already have Christian schools. We, we, I mean, the entire RTE, I'm sure we'll discuss that and the minoritarianism and all that about it. I mean, there is anyways no concept of a cohesive local school. And I mean, when we say public school, actually the British term of public school actually refers to a private school. Exactly. Uh, so public school is a very Americanism. We actually mean government school. So the, remember in government schools, the teacher's salaries are three to four times for an equivalent teacher's salary in a private school. So if you see it from the point of view of a teacher, they obviously want the government school. I don't blame them at all. I, I, they want to be on the payrolls of a government permanent uh, payroll union job. So that's it's so the point is if you do this, you'll have to face a lot of very, very, very powerful resistance, which has been building up for decades. And what the, everybody in the village thinks that their educated daughter-in-law or daughter, son-in-law can get a job. So this this seems like manna from heaven. And therefore to oppose this is politically very difficult. So that, so that is what I was going to ask you that across the spectrum of the Indian Union, is there any state whether it is, uh, you know, BJP ruled or, or the Congress or any uh, other party, is there any state where any chief minister is talking about this issue? I mean, uh, ironically, the only, uh, nobody is talking about it directly. The only state which comes close to approximately funding schools, private or public, on a per student basis, close, not exactly the same, ironically, is Kerala. So Kerala actually has... Uh, despite being often communist and Congress government alternatively being ruled, the Kerala private schools actually get a lot of money from the Kerala state government. Roughly, I'm just roughly in proportion to the number of students they have. So they have some kind of very, very deep school choice, but you have to understand in the Kerala context, even the private school teachers get unionized. Right. So that is, it's not exactly the same, but ironically, the private labor is also a label. Uh, and actually many laws like the right to education, one of the things they want is they want formal private schools, registered private schools to not pay teachers salary below a certain level, even if the market clearing rate is that. And that is clearly a demand put in because of the government school teacher unions. And they, they, they see the real source of the threat as the market salary in government school in private school teachers being much lower. So, so, so yeah, go ahead. So, so let's, you know, with this, let's now let's talk about the elephant in the room, namely RTE. And one of the first things that the UPA, you know, the, the UPA government did when, when it came to power in 2004, uh, and I call this as one of the most thoroughly prepared legislations that I can recall, albeit in a very devious, destructive sense, but still one has to give them credit that they planned the destruction of the Indian education system very thoroughly. Like James Bond villains. Like James Bond villains, except that in this case, the James Bond villain seems to have won. But leaving that aside, uh, the 93rd Amendment, right, uh, that you talk about in your book, it was meant to do two things. First of all, it was meant to nullify two Supreme Court judgments. And the second one was to take any, uh, any judicial challenge to the RTE out of the scope of the court. So the court would have to rule in favor of the RTE. So 
a lot of people don't realize, uh, you know, the 93rd Amendment was the building, the foundational stone behind RTE. And the second thing that people don't realize is that RTE has been one of the most destructive uh, uh, legislations when it comes to the Indian education scene. So let's start first with the, why was the 93rd Amendment so crucial to uh, as an as a precursor to the RTE? Should I go, Rajiv? Yeah, sure. So, I, so again, I have not uh, looked at it in much detail of late, but from what I remember, the 93rd Constitutional Amendment was meant to uh, facilitate the OBC reservations. But what be, what had happened, it became an omnibus kind of constitutional amendment, as you rightly mentioned. And they, they passed these uh, kind of other enabling uh, parts, elements in it, so that you know, minority private schools need not uh, face reservations, and even unaided majority schools need to you know pony up their seats. Uh, I think there were like three or four words in it, which basically exempted minority schools, which was, I think, in the main sort of one of the main operating clauses, it said other than minority institutions. Yes. And what happened is the BJP so kind of exempted all of them. And, and it is a very, Rajiv, I mean, it's a small part of it, but the BJP actually said, you know, we do not want to vote for this particular part of the amendment. But obviously, you know, uh, the Congress was in power and the Congress said, if you're voting against it, you vote against all of it. And are you really against OBC quotas? So that, that was the political context in which this passed. Now, as you rightly mentioned, there were earlier judgments which kind of it, it nullified. And the funny thing is, you know, this kind of constitutional amendment did not go against the basic structure doctrine. Um, you know, uh, the Supreme Court did nullify another constitutional amendment recently in 2015-16, the NJAC, uh, whereby the court's uh, judges would be appointed through some political scrutiny uh, but this, for example, in which even unfunded Hindu schools would be forced to have quotas, but even funded Muslim and Christian schools would be exempt from it. Uh, something as blatant as that did not pass uh, foul of the court's basic structure doctrine. Something to remember how ridiculously arbitrary the basic structure doctrine is, but I'm getting distracted for a moment here. So that, that being said, the RT, as you rightly mentioned, not only had this minoritarian agenda, this very divisive and subversive, even on the pedagogical aspects of it, it had this concept of uh, automatic pass, you know, automatic promotions. And that has been only recently reversed. And that I think has I been- I think till, till class eight, no one could fail. It was like that. Correct. I don't think there has been single most more destructive idea in Indian educational public policy ever. Uh, I mean, even ignoring again, the minoritarian aspect of it, all the constitutional legal aspects of it, because you know, kids are kids. And this idea that the world is somehow unfair, but we'll make the school fair and people will somehow study on their own. There's no need for competition. There is no incentive, no fear. It just does not work. And I personally think that's one of the reasons that we saw a lot of these scores falling in Pratham reports. There are other aspects as well. I think was actually the RTE uh, results showing. I mean, there are other aspects, you can discuss it. So I think it was wrong on pedagogy. It was wrong on basic constitutional uh, sanity. It was wrong on the way it was pushed in a very, very deceptive manner by clubbing it with OBC reservations. No, actually, and, and this, is a, this is a very good example of how Congress plays the caste card. You know, they, they essentially try to uh, divide, uh, you know, the uh, sort of Hindu voter base based on caste by, uh, you know, inserting these kind of clauses and uh, sort of making it uh, all or nothing. Where, you know, if you don't accept uh, the minoritarian sort of uh, aspect, then you also are uh, in a way 
uh, sort of uh, falling afoul of the caste issue. So, okay. So the, I think the RT, RTE Act were, was legislated sometime in 2005, if I remember. Uh, and 90, from 2005... Uh, 90th Amendment is 2006. 2006. Okay. So roughly around that time, the RT then also came into being. For six years now, from 2014 to 2020, we have had the BJP in power. And when the Congress led UPA did this, the Congress had, I think, about 150 seats in Lok Sabha. 2014, the BJP came to power with 282, 283 seats. They returned to power with an even greater majority of 303 seats in the Lok Sabha in 2019. I, on the other hand, the BJP has not talked about anything in terms of reforming RTE. In fact, uh, they are on record as having said they want to expand the scope of RTE. They don't see anything wrong in the discriminatory nature of RTE. So my question is, if both the main political parties of India have basically the similar kind of views when it comes to RTE, what is wrong with it? Um, so I'll take a stab at it. I'll, I'll say, first of all, uh, as far as I don't know about Rajiv, I'm actually quite sure I know about Rajiv also. We're not BJP members. Um, so we cannot answer for the BJP, but I do take the question in, in the right spirit. And I say that, for example, I have no idea why this was not even at least attempted or discussed in the first term. At least in the second term, I can understand the last 18 months, they have been very busy with what we call a lot of civilizational moves. So, you know, it becomes it's, it's more okay, acceptable in context for the moment, assuming something happens on it going forward. Now, just to be fair, you're absolutely right. They now actually want to extend it to class 12. There is some talk of even extending it to kind of nursery, pre-nursery. So there is a bit of an issue where they are conflating this access part while not really, I'm not said if they're okay with the discrimination part. Maybe I'm not sure they've said it explicitly on record. I'm being a little provocative here. Uh... <laughs> So they've definitely praised it in total. I think that's a fair criticism. But I don't think they've specifically mentioned that part as being good, as far as I know. So I think uh, the latest news, I don't know if you saw it out of Assam, where they've just said yes. that they'll ban all uh, madrasas getting state funds. Government funded, yeah. Government funded. And they've just to be again on, to be fair, they mentioned that all Sanskrit schools also, there are not too many of them in Assam state getting government money. They'll say that all of them will be uh, no longer recognized. They will not get funded. And you'll have to have quote-unquote secular education degrees to be class 10th, 12th, and BA, BCom equivalent. So clearly the BJP government is getting into the groove of things. Too slow for my own likes. I fully agree and uh, concede that point. But I think uh, it's a matter that quite frankly baffled me as well. That, you know, why the government has not been admitted. Because this is something which actually the common person will understand how deeply unfair it is. Um, but I do think now going forward, something like RTE, more broadly, Article 2930, UCC, these things are much easier to explain to a domestic and not that we care that much a global audience compared to CAA, NRC 370, which I support, but which nonetheless had, you had to explain a certain civilizational context. Whereas these three things that will happen, 2930, RTE, UCC, are directly about inequality in front of the law. So I remain hopeful. Rajiv, what do you think? No, I, I think the other reason, uh, uh, to be honest, my assessment is there's also, there's a strain of thinking which believes that people should not make money in education, which is actually very hypocritical, actually, because, you know, all these schools and universities are making money. Absolutely. They're just labeling themselves non-profits. They have all kinds of mechanisms by which they extract money from the trust or the non-profit entities that are running these 
uh, institutions. But they all, uh, I mean, if you know people who are owning schools or universities, you know, they are actually pretty well to do. So it's obvious that they are running it as a business, except that the label says that education cannot be a profit making industry. So, so unfortunately, there has been this kind of uh, thinking that has still persisted. So I think uh, uh, there is a there is a need to understand that it's okay to make money and regulate it as a profit making industry rather than rather than right. closing our eyes and pretending it's not happening. So on that, uh, you know, uh, leaving RTE and then and and moving into the role of the government itself. So there, uh, I'll talk about a couple of things. The first one, I'll, again, I'll read the one passage from your book and. Uh, you write that the Indian state is inefficient is true. Any discussion about first principles in public policy can't possibly paper over as deep-seated a problem as poor state capacity. And then elsewhere in the book, you also write, and you take the example of Sam Petroda, who claimed that he brought the telecom revolution to India and uh, you know the, uh, the late Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi's son claimed that uh, telephone uh, and all of those things. But then you say that uh, during that time, India's telecom density went from roughly about 0.6% uh, to 2.8% in, in a period of about 10 or 15 years. Today, India's telecom density stands at uh, what I think 90 above 90%. And most of this or almost all of it has happened from 1999 onwards. So basically in the last 20 years, why is it then that uh, the role of the state has not diminished in India, despite the fact that the evidence is clear that India and Indians prosper when the state gets out of the business of running businesses? Rajiv, you take this one. Yeah, so I would say, you know, there is, uh, I would say, first of all, there is not enough awareness or understanding on what causes what. So, you know, I think generally there is a mistake which, uh, whether whether they are kind of analysts who are uh, writing in the media or whether they are kind of uh, full-time politicians, I don't think they study really in the depth that should be studied what has worked and you know do their kind of takeaways from it. So, uh, like you mentioned, it's 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 so obvious that uh, the telecom story is entirely a private sector entrepreneurship-led story, uh, and and it has done wonders for the country. Today, not, not just uh, penetration, Abhinav, that India is now ranking uh, at first world levels. We have also got the world's cheapest uh, telecom and data rates anywhere in the world. And as a result of that, everybody, every section of society, every kind of individual today, I mean, not practically everyone can afford a phone and a connection. And, you know, we all remember the days when uh, having a long distance, making a long distance telephone call was such a luxury. Uh, you had to shout it, it in your was. Yeah. It was. I remember in the early 90s, a long distance, an STD call, as it was called, uh, from uh, from then Bombay to Delhi would cost 60 rupees a minute. So we all had to wait till about 10 p.m. when the call rates were one fourth. And if you would then spend 15 rupees a minute. And this is, mind you, not today. This is about 30 years ago. So you can imagine. And if you... Uh, you know, if you equalize and normalize for earning levels, then absolutely. So, and I mean, yet, rupees was what it was, it was probably equivalent to a few hundred rupees today. Easily, easily. So, 
this is a conundrum that I have not understood, and and I hope people, uh, you know, understand that the new idea of India has to include a very healthy respect for, you know, for for. For lack of a better word, it has to have a very healthy respect for the banya in Indian society. So, and also even the, even the aspect of I mean, I would say even among the leadership, among even frankly professional policy uh, analysts and academics, there is a certain fatalism. Because हो गया कैसे हुआ बस पता नहीं हो गया उस टाइम किसी ने कर दिया था मतलब but there are if you study that period between 1998 till about 2002 3 and you know enormous credit. to atal bihari vajpayee ji uh you know it just like this is all detailed out very well in a excellent book called india the emerging giant by uh, professor arvind panagaria so he's written in detail on this as to how the sector sector changed and so, and you can look this up in painstaking detail as to how blow by blow the government made it happen so i'll just add a couple of points i think avinav is important i think first of all i think yes there is there needs to be respect for money making i think this is societal attitude change but i think state capacity is also important i'll give you a couple of examples i think one one point is first of all judicial capacity is important so that people can do business across castes not just i mean when we say when you use the word, word bani i am assuming you mean mindset more than any kind of birth based uh, kind of grouping so anybody who wants to do business right now is unable to do business beyond at least for small businessmen traders beyond their immediate family or social circle because a lot of things happen on phone pay you know a lot of things happen without a lot of record even now for small businesses and what happens is when that is the case people end up doing business mostly within their communities i mean an extreme case of that is the the jain community doing business in diamonds you know from gujarat bombay and now amsterdam and so on and so forth but there are less extreme cases as well so we need state capacity in judiciary but even for the example of uh, telecom right now as we speak the ordinance factories are threatening to go on a strike if they've not already started they're threatening to go on a strike why because the government is saying we'll simply incorporate you and by incorporating they'll just become psus their ownership will not change remember the right. vajpayee government right. for what is what is now bsnl mtnl vsnl only later that some of them remained psus and some became privatized for example vsnl was sold to tata so yeah, the right. idea that while there is a war going on public sector unions can refuse can get angry just over their incorporation ownership remains with the government shows how deep this malaise is it's not a sense of entitlement sense of entitlement is amazing i slightly disagree with rajiv in the sense i don't i don't think it's a lack of awareness I think it is tough to pull off these reforms, and as no, Rajiv, for sure, for sure, yeah, yeah, that is that true. I I don't disagree at all. Mention bias conviction, but then the conviction. But uh, my point was the conviction comes from a for a politician. Exactly, and people I, know if people I, know and demand this, then you know obviously the politician follows what people want. One thing is by from below public demand, but as Rajiv rightly mentioned, you know Vajpayee ji did it. Manmohan Singh probably understood more economics per se than Vajpayee, but he couldn't ah, do it because he did not have. the guts the political capital the conviction to pull it off so it's not just about understanding policies it's literally it's a politically tough decision to understand to sell and more importantly to take on you know there's a famous video on youtube about leak on you saying you know that it's raining in the background and he's saying singapore international airline pilots wanted to go on strike he's talking like you know don corleone he's like basically saying you know i want i challenge them to take on and they ultimately I saw them and they saw me uh, when they saw and me they knew said, they knew the fight is not worth it the fight is not worth it i said let's meet in the street and let's fight 
So I, I think. <laughs> I think uh, I think you have just set me up for watching The Godfather again. For, I think for the hundredth time this weekend. Uh, but okay, so Atmanirbhar Bharat, a very laudable slogan, but it frankly worries me also because I see hints of protectionism creeping in through a very very well intentioned slogan. And I'll give you one more data point. Uh, I think it was in the 2019 budget, if not the 2018, probably the, the 2019 budget. That, for the first time after VP Singh reduced taxes in the 1980s, the marginal rate of personal income tax crossed 50 percent. For us, so I, so it. So if you take the 30% tax rate and then you take the surcharge that has to be paid if you're earning more than 50 lakhs, more than one crore, more than certain crores. Currently, it's crossed 50%. It's about 43%. It's 43% right now, including all surcharges. Okay, so stand corrected. 43%, which is still more, the highest it has been in more than 20, 25 years, if not longer. And Atmanirbhar, along with the duties it has imposed on certain imports, and it it suspiciously sounds to me like the slogan we used to hear in the 1960s and 70s, which was import substitution. The focus was not on building things that we could export to the world. The focus was on building things so that we wouldn't need to import things. And we know what it resulted in. We had the gorgeous Premier Padmini and the Hindustan Motors ambassador that we had to live through for decades. Is are we on the? I mean, is is uh, is Atmanirbhar? If you scratch below the surface, is it a return to some sort of protectionism? So I'll I'll take a stab, Rajiv. Yeah, go for it. So so I think you know I think what you asked is very 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 valid question, which I'm sure is on the mind of a lot of people. Uh, but I, I think it's important to conceptually separate a few things. So whenever you're right, let's take the income tax thing a bit later. Let's first look at tariffs, as you mentioned, and the protectionism. And so after. 2025 years in 2016, 17, 18, the Modi government started increasing tariffs for some electronic imports and so on and so forth. A lot of people said license Raj Vapasara. You know, that was the kind of headline for, you know, economists who either don't understand much or who understand but don't want to explain to people what they understand. So I'll tell you why. License Raj had a problem not just because of protectionism, it had a problem because it had literally licenses to be required for a private company on Indian shores to expand their capacity. They had to go to Delhi, they had to pull in favors, they had to be corrupt, to be allowed ki achha ka ek unit ka capacity is ko do karna That is not the case in India anymore. Secondly, foreign companies are allowed to manufacture in India just like any other Indian company, which was also not the case earlier. Remember, Coca-Cola and other companies were kicked out, ironically, by George Fernandez and other people in the 1970s. No, and actually, Avadav, you mentioned Premier Padmini Ambassador. So now, obviously, it's a totally changed context. Like Harsh mentioned, there are all kinds of foreign players coming to India. In fact, uh, the top two uh, market share car companies are both foreign, uh, which is the Suzuki subsidiary, Maruti Suzuki. We sometimes forget that. And Hyundai. So so just to continue from there, uh, an auto industry is a very good example of Indian industrial and trade policy being successful. Because unlike many other emerging markets, India is not only self-sufficient in autos. In two-wheelers, we actually export a fair bit. But coming back to the main point, so what is different now compared to the 60s and 70s? The only thing that we are doing is you're having some moderate protectionism. Foreign companies can come in. There is no license raj, full free domestic markets domestically. We are doing labor market reforms. We're doing agricultural market reforms. And most importantly, the market is much bigger today 
compared to the world market um, today than it was 30 40 years ago why is that important what india is pulling off maybe a bangladesh or sri lanka cannot pull off because any foreign guy who wants to be a global player has to play in the indian market and that gives us some leverage in the form of monopsony or some kind of uh, partial monopsony powers that allows us to say okay we do not want you to just import your best products from south korea or vietnam to india we for example indian asean have an fta we want you to actually put up a factory in india anyways the market is large enough what happens then given the geopolitical context of china with everything that's happening it's obvious i don't want to repeat it for your audience in that case the global supply chains change a bit because if you're anyways manufacturing in india then all the spare capacity depending on the seasonal influences you start exporting that and if you see gm actually left india but gm still uses its india factory for exporting cars correct correct ford is now within a jv with mahindra so we are basically using our size we are having low interest rates we are having a very very competitive currency we are having full reforms including one internal market thanks to the imperfect but still useful gst a lot of reforms have happened the only thing that we are giving a manufacturers is a slight leg up but those manufacturers can also be foreign manufacturers so long as the manufacturer are not soil so what in your mind would be a good empirical test of the success of uh, atmanirbhar bharat say 2 years from now in 2022 i don't know whether we can have a test in 2 years but over 5 years we need to have a higher uh, percentage of gross value added from manufacturing that's one way to uh, you know so would you then also say uh, and i don't recall we could also we could also consider harsh uh, india's share of exports in the world india's share of manufacturing exports but i think exports more than exports what i would want to see is whether for example right now what are the biggest items in our imports you know besides yeah, crude, those can come down yeah electronic imports is a massive one so right. can for example that come down so we i mean i know it's only one sector but we've gone from like two factories making more like assembling cell phones to like hundreds and thousands of factories right now uh the samsung's biggest factory now is now is in india it's not in china we are we are going the same way now with nokia and i'm sure in a few years not immediately apple is much bigger but in a few years it might happen with apple as well except all the china- actually all the key apple uh, manufacturers are now pegatron vistron foxconn they all all uh, investing heavily in india so, and actually this is a very good right. example the way rajiv mentioned the auto example the auto versus consumer small electronics is a very good example and we write it out very I, I think quite well in the book, in the sense that we say in the auto sector we had these tariffs, we had these industrial policies. What happened with electronics is we signed the World Trade Organization's ITA, Information Technology Agreement, in 1996, in which in with one stroke we went to zero tariffs in all these electronics. What happened is, in fact, we had less value add in this sector in 2000 than we had in 1990. So all the guys, for example, Bharati, if I remember correctly, was still assembling some telephones. in the 1980s before it became a cell phone after that all of these guys became importers and i you must have seen the micromax ad on twitter today on social media this kind of patriotic kind of for patriotic ad see micromax is importing chinese phones Correct. now atmanirbhar bharat and the entire sentiment around is saying is that there is a policy setup and there is a broader narrative setup which will still allow you to manufacture some phones in india and get a market now those phones will not be manufactured entirely in india you will still import a lot of items from south korea and taiwan and so on and so forth but can you get china more or less out of that supply chain is the big question not just economically but also geopolitically 
and i think the point is liberal economics breaks down when your biggest trading partner is not in the broadest sense of the term liberal is an enemy it's not it's it's it's, it's not it's not democratic it's authoritarian and it's literally fighting a war with you on the border so there are key assumptions of this kantian piece you know emmanuel kant and on so on and so forth which break down when you are faced with a state run by a party like ccp so that is i think we must see the broader context of it and the same thing is happening in the digital sector also now please go ahead okay good so i am somewhat then optimistic that atmanirbhar bharat will not lead us to you know a nehruvian socialistic and indira gandhi control oh, model I let's uh, let's let's turn our focus now to uh, you know to the one chapter that made me the angriest when reading the book and uh, uh, even given my you know my my views and my uh, and you know what i do uh, and it is called i think it's a third chapter it's called saving secularism from the secularists and if anything i would probably want to take and make a booklet ebook out of just this chapter and distribute it to as many people as i can and perhaps i think i may just do that on twitter but uh, leaving that aside you point out instance after instance where the indian state and when i say the indian state i mean both the the, the government at the center as well as state governments provide state patronage from the taxpayer money to minority religions uh, for furtherance of their religion and and other educational aspects i'll read out one particular section that uh, i didn't uh, know about uh, uh and you say and you talk about the renowned 300 year old uh, varaha lakshmi narsim temple in simhachalam where affairs were so inefficiently managed that they were unable to deal with the large number of cows being donated by devout hindus and stopped accepting such donations the vyasar government which is then united andhra pradesh and the chief minister was rajshekhar reddy who was a devout christian himself the vyasar government's response was both reprehensible and insensitive the cows were auctioned and sold to slaughterhouses apparently because the temple authorities were unable to care for them despite receiving crores of rupees every year in donations from devotees and then you also mentioned the uh, uh, you know the the number that uh, there are about 97000 temples just in the in the you know 4 plus 1 5 states of south india that are controlled by the government then there's also the fact that uh, that uh, you know the government pays out of taxpayer money a salary and a monthly pension to to imams and christian priests it also has and then in the same context you also have or you had this uh, legislation this article 370 that applied to kashmir and yet somehow we are told that this is what represents the idea of india and the question is that when the facts are so i mean these are not uh, uh, you know this is not hearsay these are non controverted incontrovertible facts that where the government is uh, favoring one community over the other uh, not leaving aside the fact that you know the right to education in, in itself uh, deepens these inequities when presented with these facts what is the most okay let's 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 put it this way when presented with these arguments obviously they are the proponents of the idea of india some will come with the different kinds of arguments what is the most logical relatively speaking what is the most cogent argument in defense of this discrimination that you have heard and just for the amusement of all of us what is the most ridiculous argument you have heard uh, that uh, seeks to defend this state of affairs 
So I'll I'll tell you the most ridiculous and most cogent. And before I just go there, I just want to add one quick point. You know, you. I think Harsh is going to use up my answer, but anyway. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm I'm probably not. Uh, I'm just going to say first and foremost that you know um, the HRCE in Tamil Nadu and other parts, similar laws, have been one of the most blatant and the anti-Hindu laws in the sense that they've taken all these lands, which are traditionally owned by the temples. Uh, they've been under this land redistribution. They've been taken. Then the temple themselves were de facto nationalized. And I've been writing for, I wrote in Pragati since the famous Kerala temple example where so much gold was found. Um, I've been writing for 10 years that we, and along with Raji that we need to have a denationalization of these temples. And there was some debate on Twitter about how to do it. That's a separate issue. But we must denationalize these temples. Now, what is the most cogent argument I've heard about this state of affairs? The most cogent argument is not from the left. It is actually that India is actually a Hindu state. It just doesn't say it. It doesn't admit it. It's actually a Hindu reformist state, um, which is why it lets this kind of the minority religions. Uh, there is there is a soft bigotry of low expectation that it has been trying to so-called get rid of caste inequities. I'm not saying that's a good enough argument. I'm saying amongst the arguments, that's the most cogent one I've heard. That's the most cogent argument. Yes. And the most ridiculous <laughs> one I've heard is the good old postmodern woke argument that there is a permanent oppressive majority. And yeah. the infantilization, infantilization of like a permanent um, and a permanent victim minority. And therefore, no matter what happens, uh, the minority guys need to be treated differently in the left liberal Western world. It's known as substantive equality as opposed to formal equality. So they like to believe that, you know, they like to believe that if there is just formal equality before the law, that is not good enough because people are starting from different levels of endowments and because there is a permanent victimized minority, irrespective of all the social cultural arguments. If you say, for example, that female working labor force participation amongst Indian Muslims is half of that of Indian Hindus, much lower than any other minority, forget Hindus, Christians, Jains, Sikhs, Buddhists, Parsis, and therefore it's an partially an endogenous state of affairs for what was noted in such a committee, then you are a bigot. Because any religion, any kind of any differences in religious outcomes, average outcomes must be according to this worldview, only and only because of discrimination. And because discrimination exists, therefore you need a leg up, you need a starting point. For example, in a 100 meter race, somebody needs to start at meter 10, and other people need to start at meter zero. So that is in my view, very ridiculous because it's importing something from the African-American experience into the Indian experience, totally disregarding the history of India from medieval times to today and creating this permanent majority minority kind of victimhood and oppressor narrative, which is why they try to come up with laws like CAB, um, this uh, sorry, communal violence bill, CGB. CGB, in which they said that no matter what happens, somebody from the majority is always the perpetrator. And nobody from the minority can be a perpetrator. I mean, of course, thank God this law did not pass. But that is the mental framework that uh, is behind this. So let, let, let me ask you a question there. That it is obvious that a lot of the legislative agenda in India and a lot of uh, what we see as grassroots activism is actually funded by foreign organizations, foreign bodies. And this is clear from, as you just said, that the CVB was basically some leftist, uh, you know, think tank writing the legislation for India. Is there any, I mean, is there any awareness among the people on the one hand, and even among our political and our bureaucratic class on the other hand, that they are, you know, the, the, the causes that they are 
accidentally or otherwise espousing are not indigenous, but they represent a particularly virulent strand of intolerance from the West. Raji, do you want to take it? No, I think actually the awareness is there. Uh, it is just that these people are happy to play along. Uh, sometimes they're happy to play along for, you know, a, a free trip to Europe or a free trip to America on a junket. That's the price. Okay. Okay, that explains a lot. Okay, I, I, I can live with that explanation. <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll uh, mention one other thing, and it is a sad, it, it's a sad statement, a testament on how much we have not progressed in the last 50 years. You take the, you, you write about uh, Hamid Dalwai, who was a Marathi Muslim, and he was a radical reformist, you write, and yet he had to face a lot of ostracism from his own community. But more importantly, you write that as early as 1967, which is more than five decades ago, he led a protest march demanding that the government should end the practice of triple talaq. In 1967, mind you, three years later, on the 20th of March, 1970, he founded the Muslim Satyashodak Mandal to bring about social reforms in the Muslim community. And then he spoke in March 1973, 47 years ago, he said that Parda should be legally banned and family planning made compulsory. And his wife, Meronissa Dalvai, carried on this, uh, this, uh, you know, this reform agenda of his. Why is it that we don't hear more about uh, such people? What has happened in the last 50 years that has caused uh, this community to, to you know, to look even more and more inwards rather than outwards. No, I would say, uh, so the reason I think we don't hear about, you know, I think Hamid Dalwai, remarkable Indian, remarkable community leader. Uh, in fact, you know, the tragedy we have today is there are not enough Hamid Dalwais in India. Uh, uh, and the other, one other person whom we sort of write about, we quoted from his lovely autobiography, MC Chagla, uh, him too. Uh, these are like model Indians for every generation, actually. Uh, but I think the reason we don't hear about them too much is, frankly, given the dispensation of the media, given the dispensation of the political class, it was never in anybody's interest to sort of say anything about them. Uh, because the whole sort of uh, uh, push towards vote bank politics, towards uh, stoking orthodoxy in uh, uh, the Muslim community just would not be sustainable if you had iconic individuals uh, like Hamid Dalwai getting better platforms back in the day or uh, I'm sure even today there are people like Hamid Dalwai but uh, nobody really pays attention to them because simply it is not politically profitable to do so. So uh, Abhinav, you know, what you've asked and what Rajiv has uh, taken a first stab at it is literally the heart of the book. You know, so the idea is there are minorities within minorities and minorities and majorities. People are individuals, first and foremost. So just because somebody is born with a label of Muslim uh, does not mean he or she will necessarily follow the orthodox interpretation of Islam. And in the case of Hamid Alwai, he had so heterodox an interpretation that he was a Muslim only in name. As far, uh, he was basically a secular liberal in the true sense of the word. And that made him completely a non-entity for his community despite the community in public fora saying that we want a secular liberal India. So, you know, that is the irony thereof. And, you know, if I'm not wrong, his children faced a lot of problems getting married. And one of his children actually married a Hindu in, into a Hindu family. I think one descendant recently wrote an Indian Express 
article against the right wing being angry on the Tanishq ad. Um, it's an interesting take. I'm, one I'm not agreeing with fully because I think it there that family represents an exception. But you know that she said that I'm married to Hindu, the one of the descendants of Hamid Dilwai. My brother is married to a Chinese woman, and so on and so forth. And we are all we are all very intermixed. And they should. They, she said that right wing Hindus should see this not as love jihad but as ghar wapsi because so long as any other god is worshipped, um, it is heterodox enough. But I, I'm not convinced by that argument only because it's an exception. But I thought again, the family has a very long history of being heterodox. They were never accepted by the family. MC Chagla is another great example that Rajiv mentioned. So we have to look as individuals as individuals. And what India has clearly failed is providing protection through their state capacity to dissenters within the Islamic community. People who actually take on these blasphemy and anti-blasphemy attitudes, uh, people who want to republish the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, they were not given protection while the BJP was in power in the state government in Maharashtra and in the center. So we have failed across... Actually, on that, you know, I think what Harsh has said is super important because even if there are people like that, today they will probably stay in the closet. They will not. They will hide their true thoughts. They, and they are so because yeah. because it is dangerous to actually voice some of these thoughts. And that is the that is a real intolerance that nobody talks about because in in the larger uh, intolerance of you know against so-called Hindu fascism, what happens is there is a there is a tendency first of fear. Uh, within Kashmir and in the rest of India, anybody who dissents a bit on from orthodox Islamic positions gets a lot of threats, gets a lot of pushback, if not physical threats, a lot of social excommunication. And secondly, there is a tendency of, you know, you know, why do you want to wash dirty linen, linen in the in the open when there is a larger threat? That is the narrative. So I think I think there's it's a very it's a very delicate dynamic position, but the least we can do is to provide state protection to dissenters from the Islamic community, because that is the only way reform will happen. Otherwise, we are basically in a cold civil war within this country, whether we like to accept it or not. And if we believe that demographics is destiny, and a lot of it is, but if we believe demographics is the only destiny, and there is no possibility of either gharvapsi or some kind of heterodoxy taking on within different communities in India, then we have a much weaker hand than we assume. And, and that, I think it's something that we must think very, very deeply about. We must have more police capacity. We must have protection to all kinds of dissenters, right wing, left wing, whether I like them, whether Rajiv likes them or not. And I think that we've written a lot for free speech in the book as well. Correct. So, you know, on, on the question of police, you do, uh, you know, uh, you do put out some numbers with the respect to how many policemen per thousand, uh, uh, you know, uh, residents in a country we have, and we are like, you know, one third or one fourth of what the United States is. And you also talk about the irony of the first amendment, uh, constitutional amendment that was brought out in India, which actually curbed free speech and uh, which is the reason why we are in the state today where anyone can decide whatever, you know, even the mere utterance of a sentence can be seen as a threat to public safety versus the first amendment of the US constitution, which actually forbade the US Congress from passing any law that curbed an individual's right to speech. But leaving that aside, we are at, do you, do you guys have a few minutes? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, sure. We can go on for 10, 10, 20 minutes. Perfect. So uh, before I uh, start reading out the questions that have come in, and there are at least, I think, 13, 14 questions that have come in, I'll want to conclude with this uh, final question. So there was a, there's one uh, politician who recommended your book 
but also added the caveat that he finds almost nothing to agree with in your book. I'll, I'll, I'll not take his name, but I think we all know who uh, he is. So and at a very broad level, not uh, you know taking that individual's name or not uh, this thing, but why is it that the ideas and the facts and the arguments presented in your book should evoke such an visceral, such a visceral response from people who don't agree with it? This is not a polemic. You're not uh, waving some flag and coming out with slogans and all that. This is a you know very well reasoned uh, book. So, aren't we told that the that the only way to debate an idea is to debate it with a counter idea? Why are we being told that there's nothing in this book that uh, you know the, uh, some people uh, agree with? Abhinav, you know, I think that's an excellent question. And if you've seen the number of reviews so far, I think there have been six or seven. Half of them have come out in Swaraj. And without taking names of any platforms, I can tell you that the book has been sent to other platforms, neutral platforms, slightly left-leaning platforms, and we've gotten a royal ignore so far. And I think we were we are not surprised. We we knew that when we were sending it out, that's likely to happen. And I think just to take the politician's name, Shashi Tharoor, to be fair to him, he actually mentioned that he agrees on free speech and free markets and so on and so forth. I'm not sure to what full extent. He said he does not agree with a lot of the basic assumptions and conclusions of the book. Which well, he his conclusions are actually his, yeah. his words. So he, yeah. he had to write because he comes from the Congress party. The book is quite critical of the Nehruvian state, so to speak. So, you know, to be fair to him, and we are thankful to him for nonetheless, um, you know, saying that the book is well written. He said, you know, for example, it's a very well argued book. But I, I think the reason is this, and Rajiv and I write in the last chapter that the Indian left or center left, we don't like words that are left and right, but because you're using it out of convention, that they're facing a singularity that they're constantly losing for the last few years, political and intellectual battles. And unless they change course on key civilizational grounds, they are doomed to be absolutely irrelevant. You know, what happens in a normal democracy, uh, in, a, in a theoretical sense, there's something called a median voter theorem. The median voter theorem says that if the overton window of the ideology of a country has moved to this one side or the other side, the party from which it has moved away from will adjust so that it gets back to the 50th percentile of the vote. You know, just abstractly speaking, there are obviously more than two parties and so on and so forth. The Congress party is actually going more to the so-called left, just like the country is going more to the so-called right. And then they, then they wonder, why are we getting 40 seats? Why are we getting 50 seats? They're talking about personalities. They're talking about organizations. The real issue is... They're talking about grandmother's nose. Yeah, the grandmother's nose. The country does not trust them to be nationalist enough and be and govern in line with the key civilization, civilizational ethos. We quote Sopandas Gupta's book saying that till the time of Indira Gandhi, despite all the disagreements, the party still owned nationalism. Right? Bharat Mata Ki Jai Vande Matram were not seen as the Sang Parivarka slogans. These are slogans from 100 years ago. And most of the time, the Congress was in power. So the, as Rajiv and I often say, the Congress party has left India. India has not left the Congress party. So they need to come back or whoever replaces them in the key opposition space has to adjust to the reality. What is the reality? The reality is slowly caste divisions in Hindus are going down. Urbanization is happening. And therefore, there is a much larger, broader awareness of the challenges in the world at large. Islam and Christianity might be minority religions in India, but they are the globally dominant religions. They are evangelical, proselytizing, and in some cases, violent monotheisms. And Hindus are just more and more aware. And if you do not adjust to that reality, 
you are doomed to be irrelevant. Similarly, in the case of economics, if you are constantly going on with the public sector unions, you're constantly going on with some kind of old socialism. And same thing in uh, foreign policy, there were three key uh, parts of Nehruvianism, right? Pseudo-secularism, socialism, and non-alignment. If you can't get along, if you can't say that we need to go with the US now, not in a formal alliance, but against China, and need to go back to CPM and so on and so forth, well, you are going to be irrelevant. Raju, do you want to add to that? No, oh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as recently as I think it was uh, 2014, where the chief minister of a prominent uh, state in India declined to meet the US ambassador. Reason being, uh, this chief minister thought that the certain communities in the state will not be happy about it. That was yes. literally that was literally the reason. So, yes, just just as some uh, uh, some you know uh, movie personalities did not want to meet uh, uh, with the visiting yes, uh, yes, head of state, the prime minister of Israel, yeah. or 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 how a former chief minister wants China to take over Jammu and Kashmir, erstwhile Jammu and Kashmir. Yeah. <laughs> just yes. Uh, so laughable. So, uh, Rajiv and Harsh, thank you so much for taking this time and answering my questions and, uh, uh, you know, politely ignoring my troll baits that I threw in once in a while. Uh, I'm going to read out a few questions that have come in from the chat window. So the first one is from Shiv Kumar and he says, he asks, uh, do you see individual rights as primary envisioning a civilizational state to an extent that it accommodates all of modern individuality or do you see a civilizational state as primarily individual rights accommodated to the extent possible? Or do you see a civilization state fully in harmony with individual rights? Do you see conflicts? And what would be the philosophical basis for a resolution? So I'll, I'll take a stab at that. Obviously, there are some conflicts. We do think they're broadly in consonance. And the conflicts part we actually uh, write about in one section of the book called Karl Popper, Kashmir and Pakistan. You know? And we basically say that, you know, Karl, what was Karl Popper's, amongst many other things that he wrote, it was that the paradox of tolerance. And he said that if you're very tolerant towards the intolerant, ultimately the tolerant no longer exist. And so we, you know, for example, in one part of the book, in normal circumstances, in peacetime, in normal so-called, uh, you know, where the army is not deployed, etc., we argue for close to absolute free speech. But we say it's understandable why in Kashmir, when 370 was removed and so on and so forth, you need to have some censorship. Because there's a lot of change happening. So we are not absolutists for individual rights in any sense. We definitely want the civilization to thrive. But we do think the civilization's core ethos, not in these boundary cases, being one for individuals uh, attaining their own unique dreams. So it's, not, it's, it's like saying what comes first, right? So I think there are, there are boundary cases where it breaks down. Um, we definitely want the Indian state, which I think is the inheritor of the Indian civilization, for that to survive under no question and no questions asked about that. You know, Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus during the US Civil War. Um, now, the US um, historians tell themselves that their history is one of liberty. But when it came to the crunch, the first thing they suspended was individual liberty. Uh, but is it not true that they don't uh, like individual liberty? No, it's not. So I think uh, there are conflicts, but I think both go well together, but nothing can be compromised with this civilizational state going forward. So the next question is, what is or will be the position of the Indian civilizational state with respect to the outside Pan-Asianism, EU or, or ASEAN-like bloc, Atmanirbhar unit in United Nations? 
Uh, Raju, do you want to take it? Uh, no, so I think, uh, you know, the out, 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 so looking outside, I think obviously India uh, traditionally, you know, has been so big, it's of a continental size. So, so there's no doubt that uh, when, when we compare ourselves to the EU, I mean, ASEAN, I think is actually relatively smaller, but, but uh, when we interact or look west to certain countries that have traditionally seen India as like kind of a small player, I think that will sort of change over time because as self-confidence rises in India, as economic sort of uh, scale increases in India, uh, I think the West is going to deal with a very different country. Uh, or for that matter, even the East Asian countries and Southeast Asian countries are going to see a very different India in the next 15 years. Because there will be uh, the kind of assertion, the kind of confidence, which I don't think most uh, countries are used to seeing from uh, India. So, so the world is actually in some ways not prepared for that. So there's one question uh, from an anonymous attendee. There have also been big funds allocated by current BJP government to madrasas with exception of changes being in Assam. Do you think we are maintaining this model? Needless to say, Kerala government also funds large number of madrasas. And yeah, so I think that's, that's a question. I'm not sure what... Uh... So I, I, can, I can take that actually on this point. So if, if you see, it is true that the minority affairs ministry continues to exist uh, for the last six years, it continues to see significant sort of uh, budgetary allocation. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, this government too has not really wound it down. Uh, ideally, it should be wound down. We should not have religion-based welfare. Uh, uh, however, there is a small change which one could argue. I mean, I obviously support winding it down. But you could argue that what this government is trying to do is modernize madrasas. And in fact, even that is creating a kind of conflict with state governments. So if you see the case of Rajasthan, I think we have mentioned this in the book, uh, where, you know, uh, the uh, Gelord government in Rajasthan wants to keep madrasas as they are. They should continue as they are. They should keep getting that kind of whatever funding, doing whatever they're doing. But there was a kind of conflict when the union government tried to influence that and say that, you know, modernize your educational methods and so on in some way. So, so, so you could argue that, uh, you know, uh, the, the charitable view towards the current government is they're trying to modernize madrasas, you know, take it away from that kind of scriptural training, give, bring in some modern sort of uh, education into that. Uh, the non-charitable views, obviously, yes, in six years, uh, the uh, uh, funds have not been cut off to religion-based welfare. So the next question is, in the context of a modern state, is it possible for the state to completely move away from education and leave it entirely to the communities to take it forward? That would be in line with the civilizational ethos, but that decentralized approach has had its benefits. Even in the 1800s, when the British destruction had taken root, our education numbers for 40% literacy might have been higher in the past. NEP2 seems to move towards this decentralization is the government trying to overcome the hurdles of RTE through NEP? So uh, I'll take a stab at that. I think, yes, that's true. If you read the beautiful tree, uh, what, is, what is the gen Dharampal. Dharampal, Dharampal then, correct. Then, then, you, then some of these numbers uh, have been, I think, come from there. 
and that there was much wider literacy than people expected um, because of this decentralized model. But I, I think, so NAP has tried to kind of take a stab at it. So you, what you ideally want is you want the government, so what we say is how much help versus how to help. So to the extent that there has to be welfare, there is a separate political or normative question, how much help? And there is a positivist efficiency based question of how to help. How to help we discussed is individual school choice and competition and vouchers and uh, charter school equivalents in India. How much help, you know, it, it will probably come partially from the state government, partially from the central government. And uh, the question of centralization there is probably more on the syllabus than on the running. So ideally we would want the teachers, uh, parent teacher associations at the local level to run these schools. Um, you know, that is difficult to happen completely in the Indian context. But to the extent that the local ma management is reporting to the local voters, uh, that would be much better. For example, in the U.S. school districts, uh, people pay the property taxes. And even though the school is quote unquote a government school, because it's completely overseen by the local parents, they cannot become that inefficient. They can, the teachers cannot simply stop going to the school. Whereas what happens in this case is the money comes from, if you're sitting in Udaipur, the money comes from either Jaipur or Delhi. No, nobody locally is paying any taxes for that particular venture or any other venture in rural India. That's one of the problems of governance in rural India that we actually have no taxes at all anymore. And that's a politically unpopular thing to say. Because uh, agriculture is not being taxed. Agriculture is not taxed, plus there are no local property taxes. Yeah. You know, in fact, many, many de facto cities or towns, actually rather, are resisting being classified as towns because then they'll have to go into the municipality, set up, pay some property taxes, and they will not get village uh, schemes earmarked for villages. So, you know, even though Modi is perhaps the first prime minister who has this kind of neo-middle class and pro-urbanization bias, even he has to face a very uphill battle with this entrenched mindset of we will kind of tax a very small section of urban India and run a state, including all of rural India with that. And that kind of model is actually breaking down as we see in front of our eyes, the fiscal reality is what it is. We need to broadways a tax base, but I'm getting uh, distracted right now. I'm oh, so uh, next question is, we speak of the wrongdoings of any non-BJP government with regard to temples. Why isn't the BJP being pulled up for by the same people? And is it safe to assume that parties across the spectrum are interested in temple control? Uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I think, again, as I mentioned, temples have to go out of the government's hands and controls because wakfs are in private hands. Christian churches are de facto privately controlled. So obviously the issue in India now from this position is how do we privatize these temples? You know, like, do we just give it back to the original families that were the priests there? And what caste implications that has in terms of will any entry be banned? Uh, how will the monies be divided and so on and so forth? I think so long as a framework develops around that, I think it's much easier to pressure the BJP governments on that. I think the question is fantastic. Right now, what is happening is even I know a lot of people who are very pro BJP, like Amar Govindarajan, Rangesh Sridhar, who've written columns together in Swarajya saying that we all want privatization of temples, but how do we make it more broad based at a local level? And that has a lot of pushback. I had a debate with Nupur and JSI Deepak and others on Op India, and we ended up debating a lot of this temple architecture as opposed to caste. And I'm not saying that the one is the right solution or the other is the right solution. I have an open mind on that. But the question is, how do you denationalize and give it back to the communities away from the governments? And that is where a lot of local politics is coming up. 
Um, and that is a real, that is what is allowing the BJP governments to kind of continue the status quo. Great. So in conclusion, again, uh, the book is a new idea of India, individual rights in a civilizational state. It's been published by Westland. It's come out uh, in September, I believe, just a little over a month back. It's a fantastic book. And I, I, you know, I believe it's one of those books that you'll want to keep on your bookshelf, read, share with others, and also keep coming back to for just these small nuggets of data and an argument that I think uh, can enhance the discourse anywhere. Uh, Thank you, both of you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And on behalf of Indic Book Club and Indic Academy, thank you guys, Rajiv, Harsh. Thank you for inviting us, Abhinav. Thank you, Abhinav, for an excellent Thank you. Thank you. Bye.